Welcome back to Revelatorium, the podcast that comes around once a month, unlike the amount of videos I'll be making this December, because I am pledging, I am making the Vlogmas pledge to put out 25 videos in 25 days. It's not good for the sanctity of my well-being, but I did it last year, and it the net positives and the net negatives zero out. So it lifts my esteem and sort of my like fulfillment because it's a really great like creative challenge and it gives me something to focus on instead of just being sad in the darkness of the winter but it also means that I'm staying up until some uh, dogged hours of the morning like last night it was a 5 a.m session in the stew so it's not without its its harm but it definitely is it definitely is a way to spend December it definitely is and uh, I I recommend to anyone out there, if you're feeling wary about the direction of this next month, one little creative act a day can be a fun way to shelter yourself from the psychic effects of daylight savings. So yeah, we have a lot to get into this dozenth episode, but I did just want to say that housekeeping wise, Vlogmas is starting now. This is the first place that I'm announcing Vlogmas because I do believe anyone listening or watching this is a standout candidate for that content. And it will be housed on my Patreon, reason being the culture over there feels like a vlog channel and I don't have to worry about the algorithm, copyright, because I like to use, I literally have been for the past month making a playlist for all the music I want to use on Vlogmas because I love to edit to my favorite music. So like that makes those videos stand out in a whole different way. And ultimately, if you've never been on anyone's Patreon, I've just found that they're very good faith spaces on the internet, which are very rare these days. Typically, we're in very like antagonistic, skeptical, paranoid spaces on the internet. Um, but Patreon, everyone's there because they support and believe in what you're doing. Um, and so as a result, I am able to express myself more fully in those videos. So that's my rationale, my justification. That housekeeping aside, how are we going to spend the dozenth episode of Revelatorium? Well, we're going to take a turn. We're going to take a turn. Not for the worse, not for the better, but towards you actually, because I'm going to be exclusively reacting, responding, and ideating on your revelations from the whole year of 2023. I really wanted to do an annual recap, but I didn't want to just like compile all the revelations I've had this year and just like, you know, quickly go through them all because you've been a listener probably and you've been a viewer and I just don't feel like that's a good use of our time. So I'm going to mine your revelations that you sent in to see if there are any gems that I've forgotten to bring to the jeweler of this podcast and reveal this year. So I will be reflecting today by staring at your reflection. Like when you walk into the revelatorium room, it's just like an arcade of a bunch of two-way mirrors, you know? Like I see myself and you guys so much and I assume that a lot of you are listening and here because maybe you see parts of yourself in me and I think that interconnectedness is literally the reason for being. It is why we're all here, and I would like to celebrate that while I celebrate the end of the first season of Revelatorium. Starting with someone by the name of Quirked Up Shoddy, who was writing in from San Manteo, California, which coincidentally is my birthplace. And she said at the age of 26 that 
One revelation she's had this year is that chemistry can develop into romantic chemistry. However, foundational chemistry between a person or group of people is not inherently romantic and serves as the foundation for all relationships, friends, community, etc. Subsequently, this realization helped to solidify the intent to expand my community instead of dating, something that I've wanted to do since settling into my adult slash career phase of my life. And I am so excited to explore this next year. If you have any tips for an introvert taking baby steps in this, in this pursuit, please share. This has been the way that I've lived my life since I've moved to Seattle. Like I have been so, I guess, alarmed by like the atomization of our world that I have been really focused on building community as like a cornerstone of my well-being. Like I really believe and I've seen the studies that just point to like friendships and your social well-being being paramount. And maybe I've even focused on it a little bit too much. Like I've gotten obsessive about it to maybe a detrimental point. And I'll get into that in a video I'm creating for my main channel this month. But it does feel radical to pour your energy and your flirting into your friendship chemistry rather than romantic chemistry. And building community is hard. It's I I think maybe this is pushing the envelope. I think building community is harder than getting a significant other to couple up with you. I think it is. And I made a TikTok about this and I feel like maybe nobody wants to hear this, but I fear for myself that me getting into a romantic relationship would almost be me giving up on like the quest to really form like a foundational community. And I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive because as we've seen in one of the episodes here, like it's totally possible to have a romantic relationship and still have a flourishing like friend community. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like I think a lot of people look for all of their belonging in one other person and I am kind of like let me use a more distributed method of my affection and my care because I'm like I have recognized in the architecture of my life any time that I pin my esteem, my worth, my well-being, my fulfillment on one thing, whether that be school or work or, you know, a hobby or a person, like that is just untenable. Like it's much better when I have a more diffuse like, oh, I'm getting a lot of goodness out of comedy, out of these friendships in Seattle, out of my long distance friendships, out of seeing my family, out of you know, doing this podcast out of um, hosting my book club, out of going on walks, out of biking, like having that just feels I'm like, I really am just seeking balance. And I think I think I'm just trying to see how much of the role of a romantic partner can be fulfilled by community. Like if we can take some of the weight out of that position and distribute it around your friendships, you know, your loose ties, your neighbors, your family, like how maybe that could make for a better union with a companion because it's not as, it's not subsuming as much. Is that the word? I don't know. So you had an interest in tips for an introvert taking the baby steps in this pursuit. I think ultimately it is hard for me to advise introverts because I feel 
the highest form of connection with my community when I host gatherings and I basically put all the people I have chemistry with in one room and it feels like fireworks are going off in my consciousness because it just delights me so much to have that much connection in one place. Um, But if you're an introvert and that's overwhelming, I've been really, I've been impressed with myself this year. I've been proud of myself. I've recognized uh, the chemistry that I feel with people and started to identify like the traits and what about them makes our connection so uplifting to me. And then once you have a stronger sense of like what sorts of friendships and connections are like really, really um, restorative to you, then you can go out and you can identify more of those people and also be like, I have this type of connection, but I'm really looking for this other type of connection. Like maybe you want more people that share a certain part of your identity, a certain hobby. Maybe it's more sort of your gender identity or like your cultural like upbringing or something like find out sort of sort of where, where sort of the gaps in com- your community are and then figure out where those people may be. That's why I started to show up and put myself out into the comedy scene here is because I recognize the times I feel most like seen or understood is when I share a sense of humor with somebody. And the best way to identify people's sense of humor is when you can just watch them on stage for five minutes and you're like, oh, that's that's my vibe. That's my vibe. And it's been like really effective. Like it, it it literally is so simple. That's why I like hazard to give the advice. But it's like when I've been looking for a friend who shares my joy of biking, I show up to like a bike party and then I meet somebody there. It's like when I'm looking to find friends that share my sense of humor, I show up there. Like there's, there's, there's events and there's opportunities out there. And if you show up enough, like community forms, community forms through commitment. So don't be afraid to commit and to show up for people maybe before they show up for you. Like model that behavior, invite them to things, offer to help take care of their plants or run an errand with them or help them move or whatever. Like trust forms in the act of like showing it, I believe. Like you begin with trust. That's something that um been practicing. And very quickly you see who reciprocates and who maybe doesn't and you can take action with that. So thank you, Quirked Up Shoddy, for getting me on that tangent. Okay, now we'll hear from Sarah in Massachusetts on her revelation, which is that I was raised devoutly Christian and went through a painful loss of faith and its community seven or eight years ago. I have avoided religion, Christianity, and others since then, but now I feel myself warming up to structured forms of communal spirituality again. I've been reading books about a number of religious and spiritual traditions, and while I have disagreements with parts of each, I find searching for meaning along the same paths other people have trod for thousands of years to be a profound experience. My revelation is that I can consider myself non-religious and have formal spirituality be an active part of my life. Now that I'm not um, starting with the end in mind, I have felt far freer, more honest, and more open-minded, which has allowed me to find truths that resonate with me on different places without the stress of the parts I don't feel comfortable taking on. I loved, I wanted to include this because I loved the phrase formal spirituality. I think it's such a like meme that it's like, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. That's how I feel. Um, I grew up in I think it would be organized religion. It's Unitarian Universalism, which is like an interfaith uh, religion, which means that like we don't have our own like religious text. It's not, uh, it's, it's um, some people there are non-theistic, like they're atheist or agnostic. Some people there, 
you know, come from Hindu backgrounds, some people are Jewish, some people are pagan, some people are Quakers, like it accepts everyone of any sort of faith or spirituality. It's about like identifying your own. Um, And so I would say that gave me sort of more of a formal spirituality because it was this sort of like structured community. And I think it's beautiful that I think what happens um, oftentimes is when you have sort of a negative knee jerk reaction to like your religious upbringing, sometimes you go independent study mode. You know, it's like you go into your own mode, you read your books on, you know, different spiritual practices, and you kind of go on that path by yourself. But you're right, it's so much more connective and like grounding to do that in community. And so then you do find yourself wanting to go back to like those spaces that are like more structured. Uh, But I am really glad that you've been able to find the balance there. And that's why I love showing up to spaces like sound baths or even this weekly yoga practice that I go to because it is very spiritual and everyone there seems aligned on like a common goal. So even if we have differing perspectives, it's like we can all get like gather for that one experience and share our spirituality in that time and place. Taylor, who's 26 in Pittsburgh, shared that their revelation is that if everyone else in your life believes you're capable of something, they're probably right. And I am very sensitive to this as someone who has historically been very attached to external validation and praise from other people to kind of keep me going and encourage me. Um, I am brimming with self-doubt just as much as the next person. And I find that like, it doesn't actually take multiple people to tell me to do something. If one person is like, oh yeah, I support that. I think that's a good idea. I'm like, oh great, I'll do it. It's like, I am just weakly attached to something. And then as soon as one person fortifies that string, I'm like, all right, we're tugging on it. We're pulling. I'm going to go for it. That's exactly what happened with comedy is that I met somebody in an improv class and without me even saying it, she was like, oh, do you do stand up? Like you should. And I was like, oh, just one person that I just met believing in me, like someone, a stranger believing in me. There is like, she only talked to me for 15 minutes. There's not a lot of well of information there that she's drawing upon and she thinks I can do it. First impression, let's go. So I think a lot of times we're like waiting for like, okay, this person that knows me really well thinks I can do it. This person here that knows me in this context thinks I can do it. Maybe you're kind of like gathering them up and compiling them. I am so sensitive to encouragement. It's kind of a good thing, you know? It's like, I'm very, I'm very sensitive both ways. It's like, I'm very sensitive to discouragement, but I'm also very sensitive to encouragement. So like the, the scales can tip very easily. And I think um, there's a there's another revelation I'll read after this about um, sort of like compliments or yeah, compliments and having a hard time just thinking of like, oh, well, they're just saying it in sort of like a compulsory fashion. Like if you go to somebody's show, someone's performance, obviously afterwards, you're going to say great job. So I think I tend to look to like the non-compulsory times. So that's why it's kind of nice sometimes to give people compliments at random intervals. You know, it's like, you don't say, oh my God, you look so cute right when you first hang out. Maybe 45 minutes in, you're like, you know what? Your outfit is so good. You know, like if someone said that like 45 minutes in, I'm like, wow, you've really been, you've really been witnessing and considering and thinking through it. And that was a, you know, found, well-founded compliment. Um, but it's also, it also, when I reframe this, I'm like, I should accept other people's compliments more because 
it hurts my feelings when other people don't accept my compliments. Like I had a comedy class this week and I was super, super like um, just impressed with like a couple of the different people. And so afterwards I complimented them and they sort of like shrugged it off. And I was like, damn it, you need to know that like you're so funny. Like you need to know that. And I don't think they fully knew it. And it was like, it actively bothered me because I was like, I want you to know like how great you are. Um, And so when I give compliments, a heavy amount of the time, it's not just like something in passing. All right. This is what I was looking for. Isabel, who's 20 in Texas, said that her revelation is that I've always struggled with accepting love and affection and general nice gestures. And it was a big revelation to me to finally accept that even if I can't learn to see myself as particularly lovable, I can learn to understand my rejection of this affection to be impactful on those around me and make them feel invalidated or something of the sort. It's hurtful to reject their affection or say that it's unfounded or dismiss their positive affirmations to me. And so at the very least, I owe it to them and my love for them to accept their love. And so it seems obvious now that accepting love and affection is also for everyone else around me, as opposed to being for some self-centered loathing anxiety in me. Like, yes, accepting others praise for you is not a self-centered project. I love this reframe of it just being like, it's actually hurtful when you push back against people's praise. And I will say as someone who loves to dish out compliments, like I definitely live my life where it's like no compliment should go unvoiced. I was in the grocery store the other night and this woman had this amazing like fair aisle sweater on and I complimented her and she lit up because she was like, oh my God, I made this. It's based out of this um, specific type of wool. And she like literally had me like touch the sweater. Like she was so proud of it. And she asked me about my knitted gloves. And like we had just a wonderful little one minute exchange. And I was like, I don't know how much that did for her, but it did something for me too, you know? So it's like, it's like on both ends, it can feel self-centered. Maybe giving a compliment is almost like altruism. And then it, it like, uh, makes you feel like a good person so it makes you feel good but it's also like when you're receiving the compliment you're like oh is this make me seem like I have a huge ego if I just say thank you and I don't push back against it but I will say like I have worked a lot on like accepting myself offering compassion to myself after so many years of being so ridiculously hard on myself and crushing my own spirit when I see other people crushing their spirits independently it hurts me like it hurts me when I see people so like down on themselves because I'm just like, damn it. Like I, I don't want to see anyone suffering in that way. So I really commend you for at the age of 20 realizing this because some, some people at the age of 60 still are not, you know, comfortable receiving, receiving praise. Anonymous in Santa Cruz, California, who's 24, said, My first revelation this year is that silence doesn't need to be scary. I've always had a need to feel, fill silent moments, especially with acquaintances. With work, I've learned to sit in the silence and not feel the need to take responsibility for it. It feels so good. Yeah. Yeah. There's this line in Pulp Fiction about this. Um, but I think um, I've... I recognized I am someone who I have endless ideas, axioms, theories to share. Like I can, I can easily fill any silence. So I think for some people, it's like they're concerned because it's hard to fill the silence. You know, it's like they're like, oh shit, what do I say? It's like I always have a question, a statement, something to share. So I can fill any silence. But I think 
I've enjoyed not being so domineering in conversations and allowing there to be silence to see what else could come up. Like you would be surprised if when someone finishes talking, you don't feel the next three seconds. The next thing that comes out of their mouth is going to be so much more like in depth and complex and sort of like um, revealing. Like they're going to get into it more when you give them the space to just sort of like recondition their thoughts. So maybe that's a good reminder for me this month to practice more pauses after someone says something because I'm usually so quick to jump in because I have so many thoughts bouncing around in my head based on what people say. I can almost always connect it to something else because my brain is a lateral plane. Emily, who's 27 in St. Louis said, I've learned that letting go of people can be incredibly difficult, but sometimes it's for the best. My ex and I broke up in February, but we were still talking on and off until August. I finally decided to break the cycle and then go fully no contact. I never really thought I'd be able to do that and always would want her in my life, but I would never have been able to move on fully if she was still in my life. Now I can go to all the places we used to go to with no problem at all and not be super triggered by it. I'm still curious to know how she's doing, but at the same time, I'm just going to protect my peace and not reach out. I think what I really learned is that even if you love someone so much, you can't compromise your own well-being for them. And going no contact is all I've ever known. It's all I've ever known. And I fear that maybe it's all I ever will know. I am like craving a relationship where, yeah, we we go no, <laughs> I'm craving a breakup. Uh, actually, I'm not craving a relationship. I'm craving a breakup. No, I um, one of my realizations this year is that one of the tropes I like in movies is the reconnection points. So like if you've watched Normal People, when Connell, spoiler alert, when Connell and Marianne like reunite at Trinity and he sees her at that party, I love that moment. Like I love in 500 Days of Summer when Tom and Summer reconnect on the park bench after she, spoiler alert, um, gets married. I love those reunion moments where people are able to sort of like rehash what went down with like renewed clarity. But I found that because I go no contact so successfully, neither of us, neither of us ever reach out again and we don't bump into each other and I never get that unpacking. That's very tangentially related to what you're saying. Um, but I think I am like a no contact pro. Um, and so I'm like, it's, I can speak to the effect of the efficacy <laughs> because once you've fully accepted them not being in your life, I'm like, at what point would I want them in my life again? You know, once I've like fully, I've done all the work to fully accept it. Like, will I ever, will I ever yearn to reconnect once I've been so conclusive about it? Alicia, who's 23 in LA said, I'm calling this the myth of the invisible string. I have always searched for deeper meaning and significance in things. Yup. Whether consciously or subconsciously. This can be very beautiful, but it has also led to my downfall. Whenever I meet someone I'm remotely interested in, I search for the invisible string. Shout out Taylor Swift. And then convince myself our souls are connected. But the beauty of humanity is we all have an invisible string connecting us to one another. We all have commonalities, often hyper-specific. Just because we both decided at 10 years old we wanted to move to the same city when we grew up, or you were once featured on a podcast I grew up listening to with my dad, does not mean we are soulmates. If anything, the fact that we all have these things tying us together makes life more beautiful, but it does not have to mean we are bound to specific people. 
looking for the invisible string as proof we are supposed to spend the rest of our lives as life partners will only lead us to false hope and blindness most of the time. Instead, it's important to actually get to know this person as an individual instead of trying to figure out how we already fit together. And I wanted to feature this one because I do think I have been a cultural proponent of finding significance in seemingly insignificant things. That's part of my spiritual practice is that I enjoy the whimsy and the miracle of life and seeing little things as miracles, even if they're not, you know, I'm like, why not? I'm just going to chalk it up to this being divine intervention. Um, But I want to include this because I think this is a much more sort of like holistic view of the situation is that it's like if you follow the point through, it's not rejecting invisible strings. It's like invisible strings do exist. We can find those hidden connections and hidden meanings. But more than that, going one step further, there are not limited numbers of strings. Like there's no scarcity to invisible strings. Like literally you can find a connection to anybody on this planet if you get to know them well enough and you spend time to understand them like that. Um, So I think I just really appreciate the expansiveness of your mind, Alicia, and your ability to kind of look into that because I've never seen invisible strings as meaning like you're bound to that person or maybe um, you're like meant to be with them. I just see it as like, oh, this connection's really fortified. Like this is really like building strength to the connection because we have all these inane things in common. And I'll just say, if I had a crush on somebody and I found out that they were on a podcast, some niche podcast that I was obsessed with, if this is like This American Life, it doesn't count, you know? If this is like some big, if this is car talk, it doesn't count. But if this is some niche podcast you listen to, you listen to with your dad, I would be over the moon. I would be freaking out. So I think you're completely justified to uh, get a little lost in that in that random connection. Peyton, who's 23 in Des Moines, said that their revelation is that I discovered that I'm a creative person. I'm neurodivergent and I was taught from a very young age that being myself was unsafe. I masked so well that I lost who I am. This past month, I've started leaning into the sparks of inspiration that I used to ignore. It's led me to beautiful places. I've been drawing and writing music and doing whatever creative things that make my heart happy in the moment. I'm giving my child self the love and acceptance they deserve. This is so beautiful, Peyton. I love I love seeing people discover their own creativity because like I've always been so creative, but I didn't discover that I can identify with creativity until my third year of college when I took a creativity workshop and read The Artist's Way, which yes, I did promise that I would remind you all in December's episode, today's episode, that my cohorts of The Artist's Way book club are opening up uh, now actually. So in the show notes in the description, I'm going to put a link to my Patreon. If you join the book club tier, there is a form that um, I've posted there where you can sign up for a time because we're going to have a couple different cohorts. If you've already read The Artist's Way and you want to read the next book in the series with us, I also am going to try to do an alumni cohort this time. So yeah, if you're if you're looking to find um, these blessed feelings that Peyton has found, um, you can do it on your own or you can do it in our book club. I just, it's just like my favorite time of year. Uh, and I love doing it. It like brings me so much. Um, and so I would love to see as many of you there as possible. Um, but I wanted to say for Peyton, like 
one of the revelations I've had this year is how important it is to model behavior. And I think you showing up and like finally sort of unmasking and just being yourself. Like when I see people unmasking, it's so inspirational to me because I'm like, oh, you can do whatever the hell you want to do. Like we're not stuck in the social contract of life. Like you can, as long as you're not harming anybody, like you can express yourself the way that feels natural to you. Javon or Jivon, who is 23 in Canada, said fresh air is so essential. Going outside and changing space always improves my mood. There have been countless times this year well I have been down in the dumps I've been stuck I've been so convinced that like my mood is not going to change and I'm gonna feel foul for the rest of time and then I have to go run an errand and I stumble upon a nice tree or a park and I just have a little little brief wandering session and it recovers my spirit yeah it's really it really is that simple like I think truly, honestly, if you leave your windows closed when you're sitting inside, it affects your brain capacity. Like I saw this woman that had this device that sort of like monitored the air quality. And she was like, if you are like, she was basically like the only way to have good air quality inside is to leave your windows open all the time, which I don't do because I live in Seattle. And if I did, I probably would have mold in every corner of my house. But um, I think that just speaks to like, yeah, like if you're trying to refresh your brain, maybe refresh the air quality. Sophia, who's 25 in Mexico City, said dating women has fully been the loveliest experience of my life. I'd never felt as comfortable and connected and as much myself. It's been so transformative. And I just love a good queer love story. What can I say? So I'm so happy that you found that in Mexico City. I'm so curious what the queer culture in Mexico City is like. I will say that. Helen, who's 24 in Lermington in the UK, said, I find all work stressful. Something to work on in 2024. I'm kind of there with you. I'm like structurally, structurally being paid a wage and exporting labor from yourself is that ever going to be non-stressful? For example, right now I am making some income off of social media and in general, it's not anywhere near the level of stress that I had when I was working a corporate job, but I just picked up a freelance gig and I had a presentation I was working on and it got to crunch time and I was getting stressed. Like I was like, oh, I'm feeling the same stress I used to feel at my full-time job where things are kind of precarious and you're not fully confident in what you're doing and you don't feel like you have all the resources you need and da 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 So in a way, yeah. I will say also when I worked retail this time last year, I picked up like a seasonal job at a at a boutique and um I was not stressed at that job actually but I think if I'd stayed around longer I maybe would have gotten to that point you know so um that's kind of one of my main criteria as I look for a job either a part-time job or full-time work is like how do you grade the stress that a job is going to bring you it's hard to know when you're applying if it's going to be a stressful work environment. Okay, we have a few more in round one of these annual revelations. Olivia, who's 22 in Salt Lake City, said, our differences are much less important than our ego thinks they are. 
Love and connection come most easily to us when we focus on our similarities, what we share, etc. And our ego thrives on feeling separate, different, special. Our soul thrives on feeling a part of, connected, and the same as. It's also much easier to connect authentically with others when we let go of any given role or identity we may have established for ourselves in some social environments, such as being a connector, helper, etc. The remnants of my Midwestern heritage did slip out as I was pronouncing that response, but I honestly don't even have much to to comment on with this. I just thought this was very profound. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through what it would mean in social environments to let go of like being a connector or a helper. I'm like, what role do I usually, I think I do like thinking about like, Oh, are you a vibe curator? Are you a vibe amplifier? Like I'm really good at like hurting, hurting cats and like getting people in the room, like getting people in the room, inviting people to a gathering, like facilitating it so that everybody's having a good time. But I'm not good about like, you know, furthering the vibe, you know, getting people to keep the party going. So I think in general, I've enjoyed like understanding my role, but I'm wondering what it would mean to do what you're saying and like break that and show up loosey goosey. Lydia, who's 26 in Sydney, Australia, had the revelation that it's okay not to have the same capacity for plans and social activities as everybody else. And it is better for my health to protect my peace than running myself empty every week. I am getting to the point where I wish I had less capacity for social plans. I have a different capacity for social plans than everybody else and that it's way higher. Like usually when people say this, it's because it's way lower and I'm starting to get jealous of you guys because when it's way higher, it takes you have to know a lot more people and you have to know a lot more down ass bitches. Like you need to know a lot more people that are down to hang multiple times a week um, that have a similar social battery as you. So I'm like, oi, like while I'm working alone and, you know, that's why I've enjoyed going to like open mics and stuff because it just it keeps my social battery full without me having to make plans. I can just show up somewhere. Like that's so nice not having to always coordinate. You can just make an appearance and be seen and heard and maybe even loved. Oh my God, Brianna said that her pronouns are the she series and I'm obsessed with that. (laughs) Yeah, I go by the she series. She, her, hers. Like saying she, her, hers, lame. Saying she series, famed. Like that is a... Excellent way to put that out there. Anyway, her revelation from this year is that good mental health requires practice, diligence, and maintenance, says someone who always cancels therapy when I feel like my normal self again and stops going to the gym when I get busy. Yeah, I think part of my struggle with mental health is that I look at some people and I'm like, I don't think you're putting any work in and you're just remarkably mentally well and resilient. And I start coming up with these stories in my head that like I have to push the boulder up a way higher mountain than other people do. Knowing full well that my mountain, it's not a 14er, you know, like my mental health mountain. I think the altitudes maybe like I think the altitude is probably like 4000 feet. Some people's altitudes are like 10,000. Like some people have to do a lot more because they've been put up against a lot, you know, more of a difficult situation than I have. So I think it's easy for me to like convince myself that I shouldn't have to put in work because some people are not. But now I'm at the point where I'm like, all right, you're going to have to work on relapse prevention and that's just your bag. You know, that's just your bag. 
Helena or Helena from North Texas said that their revelation is that the reason to declutter is not for love of minimalism, but to feel the space and the absence of things. In the conditions of feeling without, I'm more likely to feel the totality of my grief, loss, etc. It feels easier to metabolize feelings than to continuously cope. I kind of like the song Remorseless by Billy Woods and how it talks about the process of giving into the process, even though he is speaking more politically and fatalistically. This was profound. This is truly a revelation. Like you guys, you guys have stepped into the revelatorium this year and I can tell and I encourage it. Um, I really appreciate like this framing of like, yeah, if you're just kind of uh, constantly coping, you don't have time to truly process and thinking about the physical manifestation of that of like, oh, decluttering allows you to focus on the void of what was once there and that being a way to sort of like process your own what you're going through wow big huge huge if true all right ding ding round two of revelations i don't know how many rounds there will be but when i asked for your revelations on these forms i gave like four slots And some of you had fully four revelations. Most of you had at least two, which I think is very good and introspective and in touch with yourself. Okay, this one, Ashley, who is writing in from the Bronx, who's 27, said, growth happens when you're not looking, change happens when you pay attention, and healing happens when you take notes. Boom. Boom. Okay. Now that is something you can put on a watercolored card right there. Particularly my favorite part of that was healing happens when you take notes because I think when you do not record um, sort of what helps you, you know, recover yourself, it's easy to forget. So it's like you can heal a lot more when you're like, okay, these are the things that help me. I know that going on a walk helps me, journaling helps me, you know, drinking water, three regular meals help me, whatever it is. When you take note of those things, it's a lot easier to apply them. Grace, who's writing in from Pangea, who's 23, said that our recent revelation is that running out of good ideas isn't a thing, so long as you regularly express all your ideas in some way, shape, or form. If you have a really great idea and you sit on it for a really long time because you want to get the execution just right, you're doing yourself a disservice. Pretend that really Good, juicy, creative ideas choose people that have a good track record of putting ideas out into the world, i.e. creating things regardless of quality. So getting good at making stuff without fixating too much on good or bad and being an outlet of sorts is a really good is really good prep. That way, when a really good idea lands on your lap, you'll be able to let it bear fruit as soon as possible. And then you'll have a reputation amongst the good ideas, and through word of mouth, they'll start visiting you more often since you'll let them be born into the world because you don't judge the ideas as good or bad. You just create almost like it's second nature and you're a vessel slash portal for ideas to pass through slash travel on their journey. And I do believe that this is referencing, um, unless you came up with the exact same idea, which is a thing, uh, the creative act by Rick Rubin, and he kind of, or maybe Big Magic by, uh, oh, the same authors, uh, Elizabeth uh, Gilbert. Um, yeah, I mean, I could make another artist way plug right here, but I'm not going to. But I think 
um i'm really big on (laughs) expressing yourself i'm always i'm always going off about expressing yourself i don't understand how people take photos and don't post them because i feel at a loss when I take a series or a sequence of beautiful photos on my walk and I can't at least put them on my Instagram story, I just feel like I need to sort of like immortalize them somehow. And um, I think I've done a decent job at sort of building my rep, building my rep up. You know, I think I have a decent rep with good ideas. Like I will, I am decently unblocked and I'll see things to fruition. I'm still sort of chasing. There's a lot of other projects that I haven't like made good on. Um, but I think like when I look at the whole, I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what? No, I <laughs> I have a TikTok, a podcast, a YouTube channel, a Patreon, a zine. I'm doing stand-up comedy now. I, you know, I'm writing music. It's like I have a lot of outlets and I let things see the light of day. Uh maybe even too much. Gabrielle, who's 24, said, love ending is not failing. Things don't have to last forever to be valuable and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I'm not focused on the success of a loving relationship being the length of it. I'm focused on the quality of it. It's like, I don't want to be in this toxic situation if it lasts a long time. I'd rather be in a shorter love affair that was really, really good and healthy and high quality than just like prolong something just for the sake of like having it be prolonged. And I think I am at risk of doing that because I am so obsessed with commitment and like follow through and sort of like not quitting. So I think I fall victim to that as well. Nick in Tucson at 26 realized that making my employers more money does not make me more money. And unless you're in a commission-based job, this is factually true and important to recognize. Like, focus on yourself. Do the work that is required of you and get the hell out of there. Jack, who's 26 in New Jersey, said that mutual aid and boycotting companies can have real lasting impacts toward building an anti-capitalist future. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only way out is through collective action, baby. Oh, this one. Claire, who's 27 in Philly, said that her revelation is that I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be friends with certain groups of people I thought would make me feel like I have community in this city. But the people you're meant to be friends with will come with ease. And as soon as you're, you take the anxiety out of it slash stop forcing it, it all becomes a whole lot easier. TLDR, working on my self-imposed social anxiety. Okay, I have come a long way on this because I think I was gripping on very tightly when I first moved here. And I'm going to give myself grace with that because I think when you move to a new city, there is just an inherent sense of like desperation, unless you're like a very zen, um, like evolved person you feel like there is a lot you need to to build up socially. And so I was like really investing and initiating relationships. And now I'm at a point where I've realized I'm really craving loose ties and people that I maybe see once a year, once or twice a year at a party, or I bump into on the street. Um, and those fill you up too. And I, the reason I'm focused on those is because I think through my hard, my hard work and efforts do have foundational friendships, close friendships. 
Um, but now I've been meeting a I've been meeting a good number of new people over the last few months. Like maybe more people, I maybe met more new people in the last few months than in like my last year before that, maybe. And when I'm saying meeting new people, I'm not saying I'm making lifelong friends, baby. You know, I'm not saying I'm making lifelong friends. I'm just meeting new faces, getting to know new people, trying to understand their perspective and not forcing anything. Like I'm not forcing anything anymore. I'm like, if we're meant to connect, we'll connect. Like if there's a reason I want to hang out with them, I'll, I'll make a, I'll make a move, you know? And it's been rewarding to see that like, if I loosen my grip, people will still be around. People will still be interested in spending time with me. So, um, yeah, don't, uh, don't sweat it. But I think it's hard. It's easier to say that two years. Like I'm now a little over two years into Seattle and I'm like starting to feel the fruits of my labor get a little sweeter, but it, um, you know, you'll, you'll bump, you'll bump around, you'll, you'll bump around relationships for the first few years in a new city. Emily had a landmark revelation in St. Louis and said, I think I also realized the function of jealousy is not to be spiteful towards the person you're jealous of, but to use that information to make your own life match what you envy. My roommate got a job out of state and I was so jealous of her. So then that made me reevaluate what I'm doing with my life. And now I'm moving out of state too, not to the same place as my roommate, just to clarify. Huge, huge. Okay. Jealousy as a map. You know, it's like showing you what you want. And I think I have that I've focused on that a lot in my hobbies is like when I see somebody on social media doing something, you know, I've seen a lot of people quilting recently and I'm like, damn it, do I want to get into quilting? Maybe, maybe because I'm jealous of what they've created. And I'm like, I want to make my own blanket. You know, I need, I need a new blanket for my house and I want to make one, you know? So I think um, there's been a lot of release in like, pursuing the things that I've been eyeing in other people. And I'm really, yeah, I'm really tickled that you have also realized that. Okay. Round three. I'm arbitrarily deciding this is round three now. Vanya, who's 23 in Montreal said, oppressive systems suck, duh, but you can still find joy in resistance and life and activism. And all those things can mean different things to different people, but never stop fighting for what you believe in. Yeah, I have found so much community and joy in like acting out my political beliefs. I think like the 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 toughest place to be in is when you have values of the world you want to live in and then you see that we're not living in that world, but you have not fully realized what actions to take to get towards that. And I think it can be frustrating because a lot of actions you take, it's hard to know if you're getting towards the world you want to live in. But the best I feel is when I am actively like working out my politics instead of just, you know, thinking about them and talking about them, but actually being in the act of doing. Taylor again said, ambition is a problem when it's coupled with fear not genuine desire and fulfillment. And this unlocked something for me because I've had a lot of uh, consideration of ambition as a trait of mine. And like, if that's the poison in the well, or if something else is rotting, uh, rotting away in there, oh God. Um, 
I I think sometimes I've tried to like escape ambition because I'm like, I don't want to climb ladders anymore. I don't want to be endlessly seeking out goals that don't actually fill me up. But I think you're right is the ambition itself is not the problem. It's like the origin of the ambition. It's like, why are you trying to achieve that thing? Is because is it because you're scared or you're trying to keep up with people or you're trying to like make someone else happy? Or is it because it's something you truly crave and like really want for yourself and see as like a very realized version of yourself. Lydia again said your mid 20s are endless loads of neglected laundry and vacuuming and cleaning your kitchen, unfortunately. Yeah. And like, I think it's just kind of an endless cycle of every generation being like, no one prepared us for this. And then we get here and we're like, what the hell? Like, I can't believe this is what it is. Like, is anyone going to talk about this? And everyone's like, yeah, we've been talking about it. But like, somehow we miss the memo on this until we get into our 20s. Like, and maybe maybe it's because we don't want to hear it when we're teenagers that like errands and chores take up so much time. We're just kind of like adults are boring, da, da, da. but it's like we're we're boring because like these things do have to get done. And sometimes I look at people with like really active social lives and I am kind of like, when do you do those things? Because if you're working all day and you're partying all night, I'm like, where are you doing the laundry and the vacuuming and the cleaning? Sarah again said, I can't feel lonely and fully absorbed in a project at the same time. I've always been drawn to hands-on hobbies like knitting, sewing, and painting, but I found that, but as I'm going through a phase of building up community in my new town, I found that challenging myself in these hobbies by taking on longer term, more ambitious projects has been an alternative way to feel connection and relationship with something outside myself. Having ambitious projects going on that I'm actively involved with also helps me be a more interesting person when I'm around other people. I have interesting things to talk about and don't need a much as much ex- external validation when I'm proud of the work I've recently done. Um, major major I have like so many things to pick from pick out from this is that first of all yes I think a beautiful antidote for loneliness is of course seeing people making plans but especially when you're in the conditions where you can't do that you're sick you're not feeling well you're new in a place you don't have that many people there's so many factors that could mean maybe you can't go out and see another person maybe you're lonely at 2 a.m and it's like your friends are asleep you know a project, like when you're in flow state, when I am playing piano or I'm editing a YouTube video, I am not concerned with my loneliness anymore. And I think the way you said this is that you have a relationship with something outside yourself. And that might be why you don't feel lonely is because it's like when you see your creative projects as some, kind of having a life of their own, it is like you're connecting with another life force. So maybe that's kind of, you know, it does give you another relationship. You're like, you are actively having a relationship outside yourself. And I also loved that you said that having these projects and these commitments makes you a more well-rounded person. So when you go into social situations, it's not just kind of like, who is this? Who is this person? It's like, oh, no, they're really filled out because they have all these things that they're working on. And that makes you interesting. And people want to know about that. Helena or Helena said that love that goes said that love that goes without practice sounds more like admiration. What does it mean to show up for people? Ooh, I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm just going to let it sit. Okay, a few more revelations, and then we'll move on to our next segment. Sophia in Mexico City also said, my long distance friends saved my life. So I need to step up my game and try to be them, be there for them a little more. 
And I'm like, I don't know exactly what you mean by this, but this is like so endearing. I'm like, I love my long distance friends. I'd be nowhere without them. They give me so much support. And I'm going to end on Natsika in Johannesburg, South Africa, back of an Uber at 2 a.m., moderately inebriated. And I said, any other revelations? And they said, probably, but my Uber is ending now. And I just thought that was so real. That rounds out round three. And now to finish off the 12th episode, we are going to do a fact check, including a monologue from none other than 2019. Is it 2019? Yes, 2019's edition of Little Women, the film, because actually, I'm not going to give you the context. I'm not going to give you the context. I'm just going to read it. And action. It's no use, Joe. Joe, we've got to have it out. I've loved you ever since I've known you, Joe, and I couldn't help it. And I tried to show it and you wouldn't let me, which is fine. But I must make you here now and give me an answer because I cannot go on like this any longer. I gave up billiards. I gave up everything you didn't like. I'm happy I did. It's fine. And I waited and I never complained because I, I figured you'd love me, Joe. And I realized I'm not, I'm not good enough and I'm not this great man. You're a great deal too good for me and I'm so grateful to you and I'm so proud of you and I just, I don't see why I can't love you as you want me to. I just don't know why. You can't? No, I can't change how I feel and it would be a lie to say I do when I don't. Say yes, let's be happy together, Joe. I can't say yes truly, so I'm not gonna say it at all and you'll see that I'm right eventually and you'll thank me for it. Woo! All right, that was my only attempt at being a theater kid. That will literally never happen again on this podcast. Um... Thank you to my wonderful producer of Fact Checks, Lena Daniel, for typing that up for me. And now we will hear the rest from her. Hey, y'all. It's Lena Daniel back with another Fact Check of last month's podcast of Revelatorium. To start off, Catherine mentions why shelter is important and wonders where it is on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And um, homes or shelters are indeed on the bottom level, which are include all physiological needs. Boom, my education not failing me now. Moving on t- to housewarming and the uh, the terminology of how it came to be, it descends literally from the act of warming a new house before the days of central heating. So in the medieval times, each guest would bring firewood as a gift and build fires in all of the available fireplaces. And it was also believed to repel evil spirits by creating a protective atmosphere of warmth. So in today's terminology, it's just setting up good vibes. Are you fucking kidding me? We're really missing out by not doing housewarmings that way anymore. If my friends pulled up with a bunch of firewood and I had multiple fireplaces, do you know the amount of like overzealous pyrotechnic joy that would bring me like to even have one fireplace would make my life insurmountably good. To have two would just be gluttony, I feel. Um, wow. To I wish I... I mean, I didn't even need a fireplace at my housewarming because it was so toasty. But it does bring me great solace knowing that I MacGyvered the definition of a housewarming and sniffed out its origins for what they were. And then moving on to use value versus exchange value and this Marxist theory of commodity... Um, use value is tied to the physical property of the commodity. So the materials to which the object can be put to, um, while exchange value is characterized by its abstraction for their use values, 
Um, so as an example, the more labor it takes to produce a product, the greater its value. Um, but to Catherine's point, exchange value can include social, political, psychological, or other types of values other than labor. Yeah, I think this is a huge point. I was talking about how things are not priced at the actual use that they have. Um, and a lot of times we're more concerned with preserving the like sale price of an item and keeping it pristine rather than actually getting the use out of it. Um, I think exchange value, the problem with it is it is an abstraction. It doesn't actually represent the use of something. It's just like this fake hollow metric of like the price being representative of the value it's going to have in your life. And in no way are those two things correlated. And then to wrap up the fact check, um, in the very end, Catherine mentions a mother agency and how cool it is to have a mom as your model agent. And upon further investigation, a mother agency is not a literal definition. It is um, a, a company who markets uh, models to clients in order to book paid jobs in their area. And the distinguishing factor between a regular agency is that mother agencies have a huge role in training, developing, and preparing the models to get signed with other agencies. So you only have one mother agency and they're your ultimate teammate. Okay, gotcha. So there was a listener who's a mother agent, and that doesn't mean that she reps like teenagers and kind of mothers them through the process. It means that the mother agency helps models who aren't signed get signed, which seems kind of like like uh, redundant to me. I'm like, why don't we just... I guess the process of getting signed is complicated enough that you need an agent to get you another agent. And I just want to say thank you so much to Lena. She's been a volunteer fact checker because right now this podcast, I'm not making any real income from. So her contributions have been remarkable. She does such a fantastic job. And season one would not have been the same without that segment. So thank you, Lena Daniel. You are a beloved part of the Revelatorium experience. And now I get to send us off into the rest of the year before we commence with season two. Someone did ask me if this was just a year-long project or if I would have a second season. And yeah, the plan is to to rack up the number of episodes until hopefully I get to triple digits. So we'll see how far I make it, but I will see you back in January. Enjoy what you can from the end of the year. I think this can be a very destabilizing time. There's a lot to struggle with right now. And that's why I'm doing Vlogmas. And that's why I'm doing Vlogmas. So I'll see you over there if you want to join me on Patreon. And if not, thank you so much for listening and watching this whole year or just this episode. I will see you all next time and Cather out.